I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us, Facebook Live, or our podcast later. Thank you for joining us this morning. Come on back to your seats. We got donuts today. Bring those back. Some coffee. Come on back. It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. Thank you for your presence this morning. Seriously, sincerely, thank you for your presence. Um, and I don't mean gifts, presents, but presence, showing up, seeing your eyes, being able to give people hugs, seeing smiles. Um, I value so highly relationship. I value so highly being able to be in relationship with people and seeing people. Um, I, vi- I value so highly the Sunday gathering. I don't think it's, it's about appeasing God. I don't think it's about making... Yes, there's some people have a very superstitious approach to Sunday gatherings that I need to make sure I go on Sundays so that God is happy with me, so that I get my blessings on A, B, C, A, D. Sunday gathering is not about making God appeased or 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 um, affirm me more. We're showing up to celebrate with the community. Um, we are we are gathering to celebrate. We're gathering to honor God and worship God together, because it is really hard to be a Christian by yourself. We need the church. When you silo yourself, you break. Um, so I, I think one of the, the enemy's main jobs in the church is attempting to silo us away from each other to get us to try to do all this by ourselves. It's really hard. So I, I value so highly when people show up to do, to do church together, to be church together. So thank you for your presence this morning. It's such a joy to gather with you, to worship together, to, to reorient ourselves back to God, back to truth, back to each other. Um, I'm excited to preach this morning. I hope you're excited to receive this morning. We're in the middle of our Christmas series, Through, through Their Eyes. We do, yeah. Through Their Eyes. We've been uh, looking at the Christmas story through the different perspectives of the characters in the Christmas story, not, Christmas, not a Christmas story. I actually had somebody thought that's what we were going to do when they heard we, like we're doing the different characters on of the Christmas story. They're like, oh, so Ralphie and the dad and the leg lamp, no, the actual Christmas story. So we've looked at ancient Israel. Uh, we've looked at Mary. If you, if you missed those, you want to catch up on the series, you can check them out on our, on our Facebook Live or on our podcast. In the following weeks, we'll be looking at the shepherds. We'll be looking at Jesus and the Magi. This, this series has been so much fun. It's actually my favorite style of preaching is going back and retelling a story and then just unpacking it and showing us what it has anything to do with our lives. I love that. It's narr- I love narrative-based um, preaching. So this is such a fun series for me. I hope you're enjoying it too. Today, I want to come at the Christmas story through Joseph's eyes. Here's the plan. I want to talk about Disneyland and Jesus' stepdad and being a parent being a child, and the family of God, and Alcoholics Anonymous, and beyond us. That's my plan this morning. Sound like fun? Let's jump in. Friday, last Friday, three days ago, two days ago, was Amanda's birthday. Um, she's not here right now. She'll probably, <laughs> she'll probably be watching online later on Facebook Live. Um, my daughter, Aria, she's got like a presentation thing with her school this morning, so she's there um, unfortunately, I have to miss it, but I'll watch the video. It's funny. She's going to watch my video. I'll watch her video later. So it was her birthday on Friday, and a while back, she mentioned to me, she's like, wouldn't it be awesome to be able to go to Disneyland without the kids? And I was like, oh, that sounds so good. And we have passes. We bought passes um, at the beginning, or 
a while back um, because we wanted to be able to take Aria, take Shiloh. Shiloh gets in free. Aria has to have her own pass. So we got the lowest passes for us, which there's like select days you can go. But we got in, and I remember I remembered this comment that Amanda made a while back, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to set it up so her birthday week we can go to Disneyland together. So we dropped the kids out. I called my mom, set the whole thing up. We dropped the kids off with my mom and my dad. They even spent the night. So we had like the day and the night together. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So we get to Disneyland. We had no kids. This is a beautiful thing. Now, when you have passes, what I love about having passes at Disneyland is you're not in a hurry. And if you've been there quite a few times, it's like you've already been on everything. You've already seen everything. So there's just like non-anxious ability to just like show up and like, what do we want to do today, right? So as we're driving to Disneyland, I was like, hey, boom. I call her boom. Hey, boom. What do you want to do today, Disneyland? She's like, you know what? I just want to be with you. I don't really care what we, what we see, what we ride. I'm like, wow, that's so romantic. You're so awesome. It's your birthday. You just want to be with me. I love that. She said, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I actually have a few things I would like to do this time. We haven't been in a while. We haven't been a long while without the kids. So I was like, I had a few things I'd like to, I'd like to go on Indiana Jones because we're not going on that with Aria for sure. I'd like to go on Space Mountain. I love Space Mountain. It's so good. I'd like to go on Soarin' because I heard they changed Soarin' from Soarin' California to Soarin' like world now. It's pretty cool. And then the new Guardians of the Galaxies ride, which it used to be Hollywood Tower of Terror. Now it's Guardians. I was like, I would like to do that if you're okay with it. She was like, yeah, yeah, of course, I'd love to. So we got in and we rode Indy and then we rode Space Mountain. Now after Space Mountain, we found ourselves in conversation about how our bodies handle thrill rides a little different as we're aging. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's, I'm 33 now. She's 31 now. You, you're getting older, you know? You feel it. It's, interesting. it's so fascinating because, like, when I was 20, I remember saying, like, make whatever ride you want. I will go on that thing. Go for it. I love the feeling of my body being pushed. And I remember going to Magic Mountain when I was, like, for my 27th or 28th birthday, and I was like, whoa, something's happening. Like, this hurts a little bit different than it used to. And I mean, in a good way, I love the feeling, but I could feel it different. So we got off Space Mountain, and Amanda was like, that kind of hurt. I don't remember it feeling like that. So we found ourselves in conversation talking about, how, like, why it is that our bodies feel like that after we get off the ride. And we, we started coming up with our own theories, and then we started researching it online. Here's what I found, actually, that our younger brains thrive off of unpredictability. They actually, actually it, it thrives off that. It enjoys it. And as we get older, our brains are trying to predict for us what our senses are going to experience so that it keeps our inner ear equilibrium balanced. And then the funny thing I saw was that when we get older, our senses start to dull out a little bit, which is why they say old people like to cruise because... The, the feeling, they don't, they don't get seasick as easy. It's really fascinating, right? Anyway, we go on, a man, on, on Space Mountain, and Amanda's like, that hurt. I don't think going on Guardians of the Galaxy is going to be a good idea. Because if, if you know that ride, it's like it goes up in the air, and then it just like drops. It's like up and down and up and down. She's like, I don't think it's a good idea. And I was like, Amanda, it's a fabulous idea. It's going to be a great idea. So we cross over to California Adventure. We walk over to Guardians of the Galaxy. There's a long line, so we got our fast pass. And then looked right next door, and it's like, there's Frozen Show. Let's go see Frozen Show. We went and saw it. Fabulous. It was really great. Got back in line. Guardians of the Galaxy, she was nervous. She was like, I, she starts breathing a little heavy, a little faster. I'm like, I'm, in, I'm being encouraging. This is going to be great. You're going to enjoy it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We get on the ride. She buckles her seatbelt, 
and then she starts breathing fast. Like, she's like, <sighs> and I'm like, don't, don't worry, it's going to be right. And then, it, like, it shoots you up in the air. Boom, 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 boom. She was holding onto the handle as tight as she could. There's, like, this handle right here. She's trying not to move. I, I heard very colorful language coming out of my wife's beautiful mouth. <laughs> All the while, I was having a blast. I actually have a picture. Let's put this picture up. This was the, the picture. Actually, let's go to the zoomed in one so you can see a little bit, a little bit better there. She pretty much crawled off the ride. I'm not exaggerating either. She sat down on a bench out, and like the one of the workers was like, "Are you okay, honey? Like, are you gonna be all right?" And I, you know, over the next ten minutes, Amanda told me she's like, "Josh, that really hurt my body." She said, "I was trying to do everything in my power to stay conscious. I felt like I was gonna throw up or pass out." And look at me. Yes, I realize I'm the jerk in this story. I get it. I, I totally see that. And I asked her about this, telling the story. She's totally fine with the truth. The truth is, my desire to go on this ride, it clouded my concern for her. A little bit. Now, I, the, I, it wasn't pure selfishness, honestly. Like, I was optimistic. I thought she would handle it better than she did, really. Even though she warned me. Even though it was her birthday. <sighs> right? In case you're, you're wondering, I'm the one who married up in this relationship, way out of my league. She intentionally stepped on this ride during her, cel- her birthday celebration, knowing it was going to be a very uncomfortable, terrible experience for her, but also knowing that I would enjoy it. So she sacrificed for me. And it got me thinking, kind of existentially, like being human. What does it mean to be alive, to be human? What the core values and meaning that we hold deep inside us and I started chewing on this idea that human beings, we tend to, to enter situations from one of two angles, asking how will this benefit me or how can I sacrifice so this will benefit someone else. In a general sense, we often enter situations, we enter rooms, we enter conflicts, we enter relationships, asking how will this benefit me or asking how can I sacrifice so this will benefit someone else. And this week at Disneyland, I wasn't being a total narcissist. Honestly, I thought she would be okay, but I definitely entered that room. I entered that ride. I entered that moment asking, how will this benefit me? How can I enjoy this moment? And my conclusion was by convincing my wife to join me on this ride. That's where I landed. Amanda asked, how can I sacrifice so that Josh can enjoy this moment, so that Josh can benefit here? Human beings tend to do this. And, and, and I'm not saying that it's, we're not e- either totally selfish or totally selfless. It's not, it's not that black and white. But we tend to revert to one of these as a, as a center point, as a plumb line, as a, as a kind of a true north on the compass. And it's apparent when somebody does this. It's obvious. It's evident. When someone acts in, in blatant selfishness at work, at the home, on the bus, at a restaurant or a coffee shop, you see that? You see someone that has such little regard for the wants, for the desires, for the needs of other people around them? It's apparent. Their mind is fixated on self. How will this benefit me? And if this is not going to benefit me, I'm out of here. I'm going to find a way to get out of this. And you know, it's equally apparent when someone acts in blatant selflessness. When you're, when you're out and you see someone that has such a high regard for the needs and the desires and the wants of other people, it's apparent. Their mind is fixated 
How can I serve here? How can I sacrifice for the benefit of someone else? Today, I want to take a look at another part of the Christmas story, maybe a section you've read or heard before. I want to show you how Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, shifted from asking the first question to the second question. How will this benefit me to how can I sacrifice so this will benefit someone else? If you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 18. Where is that lovely music coming from? Oh, yeah. I was wondering about that. So for anybody on Facebook Live or podcast right now, we've got a gingerbread party going on outside for our kids and the community, anybody that came. So we might hear stuff going on. Yeah, Bing Crosby, this is wonderful. Christmas music while I'm reading Matthew 1? Man, I should just... Never mind. Okay, I'm tangent. Okay, this is one, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before, oh, I love this. This is so good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm distracted. Kind of reminds me of the Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Oh, it's so good. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is fun. A bunch going on here. I'm going to unpack some of this and give a little bit of background to help fill in some of the, the cracks for you. Three, sta- three stages of marriage in this day. Engagement, betrothal, and the wedding. I'm thinking of Patrick and Kristen who just got married. Congrats again, guys. So good, yeah. Very different than, than Jewish um, stages of marriage. Engagement, betrothal, and the wedding. The first stage, the engagement, it was the formal agreement that was made by the fathers. This is an arranged marriage society. So dads set up a wedding. They set up a marriage for how it would benefit their families. Second stage was the betrothal, which was the ceremony. It's where mutual promises were made. It's where covenant commitment was, was made. They're vowing their lives to each other. And after that, the groom would leave to his dad's house, and he would build an addition onto that house. And then later, he'd come back and surprise his wife, roughly a year later, which is basically saying, hey, the home is done. You can come home with me now, live with me. We're going to be at my dad's place. So this is the third stage, the marriage. It's about a year after the betrothal. The groom comes back, come back home. Let's celebrate. Let's throw this big party. Now, Mary and Joseph are in the second stage, the betrothal. And according to Jewish law, betrothal established a a relationship that was as binding as marriage. It's not some casual promise. When When a couple's betrothed, only divorce could dissolve the relationship. So they are together. They're in it. This isn't, this isn't like engagement in our society. We're like, okay, we're 
going to get married. We're going to start planning the wedding. Like, the betrothal is, they're married. They're basically just going to throw the party later because he's going to go build an addition onto his dad's house. So picture this with me. I was trying, I'm doing this this week. Joseph is away. An angel shows up to Mary. You're going to conceive a baby. He's going to be God's son. He'll be the Messiah that your people have been waiting for for so long. And last week I preached on her response, the response of Mary to the angel. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have said. And we got to realize here that she's she's agreeing to a pregnancy, to receive a pregnancy that's going to be seen as suspicious, as, as scandalous, as illegal. In this culture, in this culture, the price of adultery could be her death. So she's agreeing to be to be viewed a certain way, unfaithful. She's going to get rejected. She's going to get outcast. And she says, may it be unto me as the Lord has said. I want what you want, God. I'm the Lord's servant. But eventually, Joseph is going to find out. And this week, I was trying to put myself in Joseph's shoes, sandals. Actually, they said they wore boots back in the winter at their times. So whatever, anyways. Either way, Mary's going to have to get the word to Joseph or the word's going to get to him. So, option one, Mary goes to him or sends word to him. Hey, boo. I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it was God. Let that sit for just a second, right? Or word gets back to Joseph before Mary has a chance to talk to her, to him. Either way, it doesn't appear that he believes her story. Virgin conception makes a great Christmas story. It's not great for betrothed couples. So scripture says Joseph was faithful to the law and he was planning to divorce her. This hit me like a brick this week. He was planning on divorcing her. What's going on here? Jewish Jewish and Roman law required Joseph to divorce her. With adultery, the divorce was required by the person. In fact, a husband who didn't divorce his adulterous wife was seen as a pimp who was exploiting his wife. So Joseph is, is, he's now being drawn into this situation. He gets the news He could be punished for this. We're not sure where he gets the news from, but he gets it. He's not pleased with it. Either in his mind, I was trying to play with this, either Mary cheated on me or she's telling the truth and I don't have what it takes to parent God. Either way, I'm going to step back. Either way, he knew this was bad for his reputation, that it would not be in his best interest to get married to Mary. So he chose to divorce her. Now, Scripture does note that he was going to do it quietly, that he made it, he made it up in his mind, I'm going to do this quietly. And I think it's a really important note, too, because it says something about the kind of guy that Joseph was. It says something about his character. He's not going to blast her. Even if he didn't believe her, he's not going to go blast her. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace because here's the thing. In this culture, when a man left a woman on the grounds of, uh, for divorce on the grounds of adultery, the woman was likely going to get abandoned by her family likely going to be stoned to death because of breaking covenant relationship because of adultery. Joseph knows this. So he makes it up in his mind. I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it as quietly as possible because I want to bring as little shame as possible on her and on her family. But then the, the angel shows up. This angel shows up in a dream. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home with you. What you heard is true. It's actually true. She is going to be pregnant and it's going to be with God's kid. God's child is in her womb, and the child is going to be the Messiah, and you're to name him Jesus. Joseph's in a predicament now. 
Okay, now Mary's telling the truth. Okay, good. She didn't cheat on me. This baby is going to be God's son. But now I have to step up and make a decision. Can I be God's stepdad? He has to make a decision. Now that I know the truth, can I choose sacrifice over personal benefit? Because his reputation is at stake now. There are legal ramifications to agreeing to this. There are relational consequences. There's family and friends, even occupational consequences. He has to decide whether or not he wants to seek his own personal benefit and gain in this, in this moment, or if he has it in him, if he can dig deep down and find the courage to sacrifice so that Mary can benefit here. And he goes with integrity. He makes the shift from how will this benefit me to how can I sacrifice so this will benefit someone else. Whether or not he believed it at first, he was planning on divorcing her. And he started with self. How will this benefit me? Even more so, how will this hurt me? How will this reinforce my privilege, my power? How will this hurt my power or my privilege? Will this advance my situation or my comfort or my convenience? He moves from that, even a gentle version of it, a kind, compassionate version of that. He moves from that to sacrifice. How can I serve Mary here so that she can benefit from this? How can I use my power and privilege for her on her behalf? How can I advance her situation or alleviate her pain? Joseph steps into Mary's corner in this moment to fight for her, to defend her, even though it put him in danger. He places Mary's life, her well-being in front of his own. You could even argue that Joseph is stepping into fatherhood before Jesus is even born. Because if you're a parent, you know the difference between these two questions. As a parent, it does not do you well or your kids well to hold the first question too tightly. When you decide to procreate, it demands graduating past the first question. It demands sacrifice for the benefit of your kids. If you go into parenting clinging to how will this benefit me, you get destroyed. <laughs> now, of course, we have to care for ourselves. It's the whole, like, put the oxygen mask on yourself first, then you put it on the kids. Yes, of course. And, of course, there's beauty in the sacrifice. And, of course, there are moments of the most absolute and radical experience of what it means to be a human as a parent. And parenting demands that you put yourself lower on the totem pole every single day. It's what you sign up for. And at first, it's a really difficult transition. It takes a while to, sm to swallow that pill. Eventually, though, you kind of settle into this groove, and I'm, I, I'm kind of in that groove now. After getting married, having two kids, a mini schnauzer, when it comes to preference, I come like fifth in the conversation. Time for dinner. What are the kids going to eat? I'll have the leftovers. Let's watch a movie. It's going to be animated. Let's take a vacation. We need to make sure somebody's going to watch Goonie while we're gone. So we, we can't be gone for too long. Who's going to get a full night of sleep tonight? Definitely not me. But this is what you sign up for as a parent. And what I hope, truly, sincerely, I hope our kids, as they grow up, they see the way that Amanda and I parent them. I hope they regularly notice us putting their needs and their desires before our own. Not so that they'll feel guilty. Not, that, not so that they'll feel like they owe us, but that the, so that they'll learn to imitate us. 
Amanda and I want our kids to grow up and develop as individuals who have a bigger version and vision of life than merely meeting their tiny selfish desires. Amanda and I hope that service and sacrifice and elevating someone else becomes a core value for our kids too. I was talking with Amanda about this, this all this week. I think it would break my heart if our kids grow, growing up, as they get into junior high, as they get into high school and into college, if they still hadn't learned that life isn't just about satisfying their wants. I think it would break my heart as, as, if, as, as they mature, if they choose to make it their life ambition to enter every situation with the goal of benefiting themselves, advancing their agenda, cementing their power, their privilege, their influence, especially if it's at the expense of someone else. I would probably be thinking, I would probably even have the conversation with them, kids, haven't you watched us at all? Haven't you learned from us at all? Selfishly grasping at pleasure is not the goal here. Life is far more valuable. It's far more beautiful and meaningful when you learn how to sacrifice in order to benefit someone else. It causes me pause. And think about this regarding my kids because I see it every day with adults. People addicted to their own agenda. People dedicated to project self. My wants, my desires, my comfort, my privilege, my gain, my benefit. And objectively, it seems a little childish to grow up but still choose self in everything. Like toddlers who can't learn how to share their toys. And again, I'm not saying we're, we're always on one side. I know we kind of sway back and forth in moments. But if we're committing, if we're like setting up camp in how will this benefit me, it's a really tiny way to live life. Personal benefits, it's the American dream, the grand vision. We're trained into this. We're assimilated into believing life is about me. And it's to the extent that, that I can see the people around me as opposition, as opponents to my benefit. And it breeds envy and possessiveness. It even could breed me trying to obstruct someone else from benefiting because I see them as a threat to me. I fear my kids growing up learning this way of life, using this way of life against each other. And if that causes me pause about the way we parent Arya and Shiloh, I wonder how, how God feels about all of this. You see, in the New Testament, there's a bunch of language about how we're adopted into the family of God. I actually believe this to be the dominant metaphor for our lives is following Jesus. We're God's kids. Beloved, honored, cherished. Not based on how, not based on how well we perform. Not based on how little we sin. But that we're divine children because the divine has called us his own. That's it. Scripture says we receive the Spirit of God and we become children of the benevolent and tender Heavenly Father. So similarly, I wonder how God looks upon our lives as his kids as we scrap with each other, at the expense of each other, trying to enhance our experience of his creation. It has to break his heart. He's got to be watching, thinking, kids, haven't you watched me at all? Haven't you learned from me at all? Selfishly grasping at pleasure is not the goal here. 
Life is far more valuable and beautiful and meaningful when you learn how to sacrifice in order to benefit someone else. What we're talking about here is how we use power. Jesus redefined that for us. When he grew up, remember the story of him washing his disciples' feet? This is is what power looks like, guys. This is how God demonstrates what you do with power. You get on your knees and you serve someone else. You see, our culture's approach to power is aggressive. It's self-absorbed. It celebrates using our power and our authority to ensure our survival, to fight for promotion, to defend success, to gratify our wants and desires. So when we see individuals who use their authority, their privilege, to fight for someone else, especially someone with less power, someone with less privilege, that's rare. To see an individual like Joseph make this shift, to decide to put his name, his safety, his privilege at risk in order to defend someone who in that moment can't defend herself, that's rare. Joseph could have looked at the decision at hand, caught between what was right and what would protect his reputation, and he could have justified it. He could have justified divorcing Mary. Even if she is telling the truth, even if that dream was from God, maybe the dream was just my own subconscious. They didn't know what that was back then, but maybe he's just like, that was some weird something that I ate last night. But even if the dream was from God, no one else is going to believe it. I'll be rejected too. I'll be marginalized too. I will bring shame upon my name and my family's name too. Besides, the law says I have to divorce her. It would have been justified. He could have easily avoided criticism and judgment. Yet he chose integrity. He chose character. He chose obedience to God and God's plan for his life, which impacted far beyond his own life. I'm reminded of a quote from Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. He once said, there will be a time when we must choose between what is easy and what is right. Joseph chose what was right. And it took a shift from how will this benefit me to how can I, ben- how can I sacrifice so this will benefit someone else. You know that feeling when you're up against an authority bigger than you? up against a force more powerful than you, but you're on your own? How do you feel? Lonely? Fearful? Resentful? You know that feeling of being up against an authority bigger than you, a force more powerful than you, but someone stands up for you? How do you feel? Grateful? Honored? Hopeful? Joseph chose to make a defiant stance against culture, and reputation, and personal benefit in this act of sacrificial love. He collects his power, his authority, his privilege, and he does well with it. He lays it down in order to elevate another who cannot elevate herself in this moment. And in doing so, he not only elevates and saves Mary, he also elevates and saves Jesus. And what I love is it's like this poetic twist where later we see Jesus grow up and elevate and save Joseph. And all people. So beautiful. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's been a force for the last 75-ish years. They've done some astonishing good in our world. You know what the secret to this AA 12-step program is? The power behind, behind who actually gets sober and who doesn't? It's found in step 12. 
I've read that few alcoholics enrolled in AA will find sobriety until they complete step 12. Even if they complete 1 through 11, those who don't finish the last step are very likely to relapse. Step 12 is where the power is. It's where the power is in defeating their addiction. You know what step 12 is? It's the commitment to help another defeat the disease. It moves outside of themselves. Step 12, is, it demands fighting for someone else. Step 12 is about a person using their newfound power, their newly discovered freedom from addiction and bondage, and stepping into someone else's addiction with them to help free them from their addiction and their bondage and fight for their freedom. This is what makes AA so powerful. They're not just training people how to abstain. They're training people how to fight for someone else. And guys, this is what the church is called to. This shouldn't be the rare thing. This should be the thing when people hear about people doing this, they're like, aren't they part of, are they part of the church? That's what the church does. They join the divine in fighting for and bringing value to and benefiting another's life. This is what we're about. God beckons his kids, join me. Fight with me. Fight for others. Defend others. Use your influence to elevate those who have less. You might ask, well, what can I actually do? I mean, I can't save the world. can't fix everyone's problems. My fiance isn't pregnant with the Messiah. The answer, do something. Edmund Burke once said, nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Following Jesus, being a part of the family of God, it's ultimately about learning how to live countercultural, sacrificing for the benefit of someone else. And in, in doing so, we overcome evil with light. And this is the heart behind our Beyond Us initiative. I've been talking about this for four months. In September, we began a four-month initiative to raise $20,000 for local and global work beyond our church. Friends, we're not just an exclusive club. We're a church family on mission, joining Jesus in bringing renewal and wholeness to a broken world. So we're raising money to make a difference in people's lives. And I want to come back to this because we're at, this, this ends at the end of December. I want to come back to this for a moment. And we'll talk just shortly about what we're doing with this money. This is how it's going to get split up. 5000 is going to go to local work here, here in L.A. It's going to help fund the money we pushed towards the, um, the, the Halloween event, the trunk or treat, stuff like the gingerbread party that we're having outside right now, um, other stuff we've done in the past. Thank you, Baskets for Teachers and um, School Gifts for Kids, Homeless Care, partnering with the, the Santa Monica Boys and Girls Club. We believe in being a force for good in this city. In this city. So the, the first 5,000 is going to go towards local work. Then 2,500 is going to go towards the Harvest Home. They're one of our local partners serving pregnant homeless women on the west side. It's incredible work that they're doing. 2,500 is going to go towards Emp I Empathize. They're one of our local partners here as well. And their work is, is aimed at eradicating child exploitation in L.A. It's unbelievable. They're, they're like, they've been allowed into the schools to teach kids how to not get sexual, like trafficked for sex. Unbelievable work. They're one of our local partners. 2,500 is going to go to Graceland Church, which was formerly uh, Risen Church. Um, they're our, our national partner serving Franklin, Tennessee. This is the Kolar family who planted this church. They're now in Graceland. 2,500 is going to go toward our global partners. They're a, they're a missionary family that's on mission in East Africa right now. And because of the sensitivity and the danger of their work and the location, 
we keep conversation about them to a minimum when we're online because it's actually, it's actually very dangerous. So we call them our global partners. And then 2500 is going to go towards the Syrian refugee response. This is so exciting. We're partnering with the, the SoCal Network of the Assemblies of God. It's a big project. Um, all the Southern California AG churches that we're, we're collecting together to make a massive influence for the Syrian refugees, providing food, water, education, counseling, and health care for Syrian refugees. It's a, it's a $1.7 million project. And I would like to take a little chunk of that from our church. And then lastly, 2500 is going to go toward our missionary friends in Colombia. Um, so the, the Colombia missions trip that our church went on, our, we, we took a small team to Colombia, served at an orphanage there. They're constructing a government-mandated um, nursery right now. And we'd love to throw some money at their, at their construction. It should go without saying that 100% of the funds will go directly towards this initiative, but I want to say it anyway. And again, this, this initiative finishes on the 31st. So I want to I ask you, if you haven't given towards this, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider giving something sacrificially, generously into this thing. Um, you can do it on our website or on the back table at the connection table. Are we a small church? Yeah, absolutely. Can we raise $20,000 to make local and global impacts beyond us? Absolutely. The question is, do we want to be a radically generous community? Do we want to just theoretically believe in benefiting others' lives or actually be a living demonstration of sacrificial love? And no, this whole thing is not about money, but absolutely includes it. What we're talking about here is this holistic and redemptive way of ordering the world. Money's in there, but it's much bigger than this. So I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself, who might Jesus have strategically placed in your life? Who might Jesus have strategically placed in your life in order that you would use your power and your privilege and your resources and your influence to elevate them, to defend them? Who exists in your relational network that God might have intentionally positioned in your life so you could learn how to sacrifice, sacrifice your own gratification for their benefit? You might think, well, I don't know any orphans or widows, and I know the Bible talks about that. Who am I supposed to stand up for? Who am I supposed to fight for? Maybe you could start here. Where do you have privilege? Where do you have power? Where do you have resource? Where do you have influence? Start there and ask who in your world lacks in those areas. And get creative. Seriously, ask Jesus to give you some, my good, some good ideas. Maybe it's the intern at work who gets harassed every single day just because she's been at the company less than everybody else in the company. And maybe you're supposed to use your seniority to defend her. Or maybe it's your sibling who's been wrongfully exiled by the rest of the family. Or maybe it's that, that grumpy elderly neighbor who can't help but offend everybody in the, in the apartment complex, but honestly, he just needs a friend. Or maybe it's the man that reeks of urine outside the Starbucks that you frequent or the only Republican in your office space who gets ridiculed because he voted for Trump. Like, get creative. Who is it? I want you to ask yourself, how can I use my power and my privilege like Joseph did, who fought with sacrificial love? How can I use my resources to elevate another who will not be able to elevate themselves because of this? Or maybe even a deeper question, do I even have the courage to live countercultural? to shift from seeking my own benefit to seeking someone else's benefit.
I want to invite the worship team back up. And our two prayers that I talked with to go back to the connection table. We're going to go into a time of response in worship and song just to give some space for God, what, make, what God might be doing in your heart right now, in your mind right now. And maybe you need a song to sing as a way of responding to this work God's doing in your heart. Maybe you need this song sung over you. Maybe you just need to sit in silence in meditation. Maybe you feel very convicted. Maybe you feel very encouraged. Maybe you need to stand with a brother or sister who's in the back of the room that would love to stand with you and pray with you about what's going on in your life right now. You know, I wonder what it would look like if a community of individuals committed to this shift. If we resolved in our hearts to use our power, our authority, our privilege, to sacrifice our own comfort and sacrifice our own pleasure to fight for those with less. To use our freedom to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. I wonder, would it impact our church? Would it impact our families? Would it impact the schools in our city? Or the places we work? Or the places we go for recreation? Would it impact our industries in our city? You know, we get lost in the numbers. We get lost in the mass. So let's make it smaller. Does our church have the ability to change one person's life? Does our church have the ability to elevate and fight for three people? Or 10? Or 50? And if so, is it worth it to us? Is the sacrifice worth elevating 50 people? I think so. I think it's worth it. Because each person we impact, each person we elevate and fight for, they have a name. They have a face. They have a story. They have gifts. They have pain. They have joy. Just like every one of us in this room. So we've got a decision to make as a, as a church family. We've got a decision to make. As we reflect on the Christmas story this Advent season, will we flunk out of the school of sacrifice? Or will we, like Joseph, resolve to shine light on a broken world? Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this moment that we're not alone, that you are God with us, Emmanuel, that you are Jesus, the God who saves. You are God, our salvation. And I don't know what you're stirring in this room right now, but I pray life into that. God, not that people would feel guilty or condemned or shamed because of previous decisions, but that they would be encouraged and, breathed, and life would be breathed into them about making new decisions. God, would you give us creativity to know how we can use our power, how we can use our freedom to sacrifice for those who don't have it. So we pray for an encounter with you right now, God. Transform our hearts, make us like you, and cause us to love as you do. Jesus' name.